Welcome back to another edition of the Musketeer Report podcast. Paul Fritschner, Rick Broering, after another week for Xavier to take care of a couple of wins and a big one yesterday at Oklahoma State in Stillwater. Oklahoma State, the net rankings just dropped the first net rankings of the year. Three quad one wins as of right now. Obviously, Rick, things can change through the year. Teams can drop. Teams can rise. Uh, But Ohio State checks in at 28. Virginia Tech is at 40. Oklahoma State is 62. All three of those, as of now, are quad one wins for Xavier. Xavier last year only had one quad one win all of the entire season. Um, and as of now, if things stay the same, that would be three already looking into, into conference play. And funny enough, the highest net team that Xavier's played was Iowa State. They debut at 20. Uh, so overall, this has been a really great, resume-building non-conference season. Uh, Oklahoma State yesterday was a game I know a lot of people were skeptical about. You and I both had a loss in our preseason podcast yesterday, um, but there was a lot of optimism with Fremantle back um, and just the way Xavier played it out, overcame some scoring droughts. But to get three quad one wins already and work on it, today's December 6th, that is quite a resume for Xavier already at this point in the season. Yeah, I mean, we were expecting that. Now, granted, we thought Iowa State wouldn't be as good as they are right now. We didn't think that would look like a quad one game one way or the other at the time when we were doing our preseason predictions. But originally, we had Xavier with none of the current quad one wins that they have. We had them losing, to, or at least I had them losing to Ohio State. I had them going one and one with a win over Iowa state and a loss to Memphis, most likely in the exempt event. And I had them losing at Oklahoma state to, to start to see. And I was fairly high on this team. I think I had reasonable expectations. I think they're a tournament team before all this we're sitting here and there's been a lot of hemming and hawing and complaints and criticisms <laughs> about this team to this point, but they're in a really good spot from a resume perspective right now. Yeah, Xavier uh, completes the the OSU sweep. I don't know what Oregon State's standing is to maybe make the NCAA tournament. I think they're going to need a lot of help. But uh, go 2-0 against OSU here in the first few weeks of the season. And, yeah, to to beat Oklahoma State yesterday the way they did in, in Stillwater. Now, granted, that may have been <laughs> the worst – that. There's a lot we can talk about outside of the on-court performance yesterday, but that may have been the single worst – non-conference true road atmosphere that I can remember. Now you look at, and I texted you during the game. There's some, when you, when you have the exempt events like last week in Brooklyn, like there's just maybe not the biggest crowds, but a true road game to be that just flat out dead. Now, again, Oklahoma state's not really playing for anything. So maybe there's some apathy there with the fans, but still that's not, this is a good Oklahoma state team. And you're playing a, a very good Big East team. And I know, you know, football too. Like there, there were a lot of mitigating factors there, but boy, Rick, was that a miserable atmosphere? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the status of their students were in terms of whether they're on campus right now or off, but assuming there could be something going on with that, with some students being home already, you've got the football situation, which was not only was it going on and there was tons of football being thought about in Oklahoma during this weekend, but They also, it's a disappointing weekend for them. So I imagine people weren't like ready to go out and party. And then two, this basketball season, like you brought up, is just a wash for them. It means nothing at this point, which I imagine it's got to be hard to get fired up for that. So the weird part about it was the people that did make it out to the game, 
it was like they were being held hostage there. It, like, I don't, it, there was like no energy from those people at all. And then they'd show them in the crowd and they're look pissed off and unhappy. I guess lingering effects from the, the football game. But yeah, it was as bad of a crowd as you get. And then to add to that, we had one of the saddest ESPN broadcasts I think I've ever witnessed. And I'm not even really criticizing the play-by-play and color guy. I thought they did an okay enough job. I thought everyone was pointing out that King McClure was calling out the officials, rightfully so. And he did a pretty good job of describing some of the things that were going on from a basketball perspective. He also sounded like he was going to fall asleep at any second. <laughs> yes. uh, they had, the mix on the game was terrible in terms of their mics versus the crowd noise versus, I don't know if they're pumping in some fake crowd noise at some point. I don't know. It they might've had to at some point Yeah, for Oklahoma state's fans because they weren't, they were non-existent. It was just a mess of a broadcast. And then you had like weird digitization sounds where they were like, their audio was skipping a little bit. Like they're over a zoom call doing a podcast. So ESPN put your broadcasters back in the gym. I know COVID made it easy to start doing this and you realize how much money you're saving, but if we're going to have a big East and a big 12 team play each other in non-conference on site, put your broadcasters in the gym. If you want to do some mid-major stuff on ESPN plus and ESPN three, that's great. But if you're doing it on ESPN with a big time game like that, you've got to have the announcers in the arena. Do you not? Yeah, I'm with you. And look, I don't want to get on my soapbox here because I could go on and do a whole podcast on my own about that. And I think people listening would would know that. But uh, I know it's a niche audience to care about the broadcast and everything. But look, I, I've talked to a lot of FS1 broadcasters that have done games both remotely and on site this year. And it's just it's just incredible what the remote broadcasts have to deal with, with just lag time in between when the game action happens and when they see it, like I, I mentioned, well, you've on done the that message, for baseball, right? Yeah, I did. It's I did. I, yeah. it's, it's horrendous. It, it's really, and obviously they have a lot more resources than I did with baseball, but yeah, it's, and, and basketball is a little easier because you have everything in, in one camera angle, but but yeah, with, with basketball, and I was talking to one FS1 guy, and I mentioned this on the message board a few weeks ago, that like you could hear, he said he could hear in his ears, in his headset, when the ball you know would go off the rim or when it would go through the net, whatever, the, the net sound from inside the arena, but he wasn't seeing it on his monitor from his home for another two or three seconds. And it's like, okay, if you're that delayed it, and that was pretty obvious in the first few weeks of, of the remote stuff with FS one. And then you come to ESPN and you're doing the same thing remote. And it's like, look, I know you have to, I, I know with COVID they're trying to cut corners. And I know that broadcasting is never going to be the same as it was before COVID because before COVID you wouldn't even consider putting people remote for something like this. Yeah. It, it just made it COVID made it acceptable to try out and do and as soon as they saw the bottom line, it was an easy call for them. That's what it, it's about money at this point. It's not, I don't think it's about pandemic or keeping people safe or anything like that. I think it's totally about money, which I understand. And I understand cutting some corners. I'm to be honest with you. I'm surprised newspapers haven't done the same thing after they quit sending the reporters to games everywhere and found out they get the same amount of clicks. Essentially. I'm surprised they are continuing to send their reporters out to games, but from a broadcasting perspective, I think it makes a big difference. And I, I called one game last year off of a monitor for NKU. And the biggest issue that I had with it is you don't have the sound of the game up, right? Because nope. you're calling the game and you can't listen to the broadcast. So when there is a play and a ref makes a call and you're not exactly sure what happened or what they're looking at or what's going on, you have nothing to go. Like no one's there to help you. You can't ask an official. You're not courtside. 
you, you get no sound from anyone. So you're literally just watching the screen going, no idea what that call was about. And, and that's a great point because that's something that is a broadcaster. You do, you communicate with the official before a game and then the official knows, Hey, if it's, you know, if it's TV game, the official will come over, they'll talk to you. They'll clarify what's happening, what the review was, something like that. Yeah, four or and, five times a game, I take my headset off and I'm standing up, leaning over, asking for official to come over and explain to me what they're talking yeah. about or what they're reviewing on a monitor or whatever. And it's like, I'm not saying it's the end of the world for your broadcast, but when you are trying to do a game, you're trying to keep a conversation going about what's happening and you've got a two and a half minute stoppage as they're going to a monitor and you have no idea why they're even doing it. It's it's hard to call the game. And, and a perfect example, too, and this is my last point on this from yesterday. Think about somebody like Paul Scruggs that goes out with an injury in the game. When you're watching the game, the only time you can see Paul is when the camera pans down the court and it's in Xavier's end of the court or whatever. If you're at the game, maybe you're, you're taking a glance over there. You're looking at the bench. Maybe Paul's running back to the locker. Like those are the little things that can add to the broadcast that as a viewer sitting at home, you're thinking, okay, is Paul still on the end of the bench? Oh shoot. He's not on the end of the bench. Where did he go? But if you're not there in the arena, you can't see it. You can't add to the broadcast with those little things. And look, again, it's all about the money. I, I, I don't get it, but I get it. But those are the little things that you lose. And yeah, yesterday it was, it was a two and a half hour game almost in a dead arena with a one of the most bizarre broadcasts. It was just I got to the end and I felt like, what in the world did I just watch? It was strange. It had a very eerie feel to it. But all in all, it was a really good game for Xavier. And I thought they brought the energy and everything. It wasn't a it wasn't something that took away from the performance on the court. Really, it was a pretty hard fought yeah. game and Xavier played well. But yeah, it was a strange game to watch on TV. That's for certain. So just to dive in here in, into the game, Xavier, again, three quad one wins already. But again, those things can change as the season goes along. It's not like that's uh, set in stone. But I think probably where we should start and the thing that most people were talking about um, was how Xavier won that game in the second half yesterday at Oklahoma State by getting out of the man-to-man -man and going into the zone. And that was something that you pointed out uh, that a lot of people were talking about the broadcast was talking about that really just completely changed the dynamic of how Xavier was able to defend in those last 12 minutes of the game. Oklahoma state goes on this massive scoring drought. And that was when Xavier really put the game away. Oklahoma state made it a little interesting with a couple of threes at the end, but Xavier and, and Travis Steele made it really clear to say like, Hey, Oklahoma state, you're a terrible three point shooting team. They kind of they kind of played the Uno reverse card on Xavier, right? Like everybody does that to Xavier where you say, okay, if you're going to beat us, you're going to beat us by shooting threes. And Xavier played that card on Oklahoma State and it played it paid off. Yeah, and I think they knew that was something that they would probably be doing in this game at some point. The first half, the way it played out, the defense wasn't terrible in the first half. I think a lot of people felt that it, it was pretty bad, but overall, if you go back and watch, th there were some, there were a couple breakdowns they had, like Deontay miles got back cut one time where he completely lost his man for a dunk. There were uh, a couple turnovers that did lead to points, although not as many as you would think based off the fact that they had 10 first half turnovers. They only, I think gave up seven uh, points off those turnovers. So it wasn't a disaster from that perspective. It could have been a lot worse. And they also had some points in transition that you, you really shouldn't or can't give up, but that's not based off of what defense you're in. That's based off of stopping the ball and getting guys in the right position. And also Oklahoma state's pretty good at that. That's what they do. They tend to do it to everyone. So I didn't think the defense was a big problem in the first half. So I think Travis was using it because 
there is value in throwing a new look out at a team, even if it's something they've seen a million times, which Oklahoma State has seen multiple 2-3 zones this year. And even if it's not something that's unusual, it's a standard 2-3 zone, there is value in just throwing a new defense at to change the, the dynamic of the game. And in this case, you could tell. I mean, Oklahoma State, one, they're just not a good shooting team, but they went from attacking hard on almost every play, whether they were getting downhill in the first half, just beating their man one-on-one. They were getting some good ball screen actions where they were picking and rolling and getting to the rim. And the one thing they were doing a lot was sealing Xavier's big men deep in the paint, right over the front of the rim. A lot of times it was Deontay Miles getting sealed deep. And the zone kind of took that away. Like there was one play where Dwan Odom really showed off his length and athleticism, where I think because he's small, they thought they were just going to throw a quick little lob pass to the high post there at the free throw line. And he gets a, a tip on it. And Xavier steals the pass and goes the other way once they were in the zone. So that zone did a lot to take away the points at the rim. And I wonder, you know, if you play that zone for 10 minutes in the first half and bring it back in the second half, is it as effective in the second half after they had already taken their three point shots in the first half, settled in against it, and then got back to attacking, getting the ball inside more? It may not have been as effective. So I like the idea for Travis to hold it off until the second half, wait until later in the game. And then you got that about six minute run where they just didn't score at all that ended the game for. I mean, that basically won the game for Xavier right there. If you get a six minute drought in the second half, you're going to like your odds more often than not. Yeah, you said something in there that I was going to talk about a little bit, too, with the turnovers in the first half. It just felt like the turnovers were inopportune. They were they were kind of lazy or bad turnovers. But at the same time, Oklahoma State wasn't scoring off of them. And I tweeted that at one point in the first half where Xavier was outscoring Oklahoma State in points off turnovers, even though Xavier had way more turnovers than Oklahoma State did. Uh, and really, in the end, by halftime, it just about evened out turnover wise. But it was just that there were some stretches, a kind of sloppy play. But again, Oklahoma State was the seventh best team at turning you over in the entire country. So it's not like those things weren't going to happen. They're going to happen. It's like, OK, if you're going to go out there and, and play Oklahoma State and not turn the ball over, that's that's probably not a game plan that's realistic. And Oklahoma State did turn Xavier over, but offensively, they didn't take advantage of it. And then to your second point, yeah, Oklahoma State was getting a ton of just open looks at the rim in the sense of just interior, what I felt like interior breakdowns where they're throwing a lot of lobs and, and getting things that the zone cut off because Xavier was able to, to pack it in a little bit more when they were just leaving those open shooters and Xavier was just gathered around the rim. Yeah, well, I mean, you take away their ball screen actions, right? I mean, it's tough to yeah. run a pick and roll against a 2-3 zone. So it, you can do some screening of a zone, but it's not the same actions. You're not going to get those lobs at the rim like you were talking about. So it definitely changed the way they were able to attack it. And that gave Xavier just enough time against a team that's not very good offensively to begin with that, you know, they were able to make a big run. And and that's what they needed to, to win this game probably because it wasn't going to come easy against that Oklahoma State defense. They were never never going to be able to just run up a ton of points all at once, so they had to get a bunch of stops all at once, and they were able to, to do that. I thought that was pretty impressive, a good job of coaching, but also a really good job of the team by executing not just the defensive part of it, but clearing the glass because it's really difficult to rebound against a team like Oklahoma State when you're playing a zone defense. And thankfully for Colby Jones and some of those other front court players, Xavier really had no issues from a rebounding perspective in this game, even when they were in the zone. So I thought that was definitely big. One other thing I wanted to hit on as we're talking about Oklahoma State's defense and the way they played in terms of pressuring the ball, getting out and denying the passing lanes. I saw some complaints 
on the message board, also on Twitter about Xavier being too one-on-one oriented in this game, seeing too much ISO, seeing guys put their head down and drive too much. That is how you beat that defense. If you listen to Travis Steele in the post game, he talked about they had to play North and South in this game. They couldn't play East to West. And a lot of times, if you listen to Travis or a lot of coaches, they'll tell you, you got to get the ball from side to side. You want to move from left to right and keep moving the defense because it softens them up and enables you to attack. Well, in a defense like they're playing where they're switching everything, they're getting out denying and they're really pressuring the ball. You can't do that. You're playing in their hands. If you're trying to swing the ball around the perimeter, they're going to eventually tip one of those passes and go the other way with it. So what you have to do is beat your one-on-one matchup into the lane. And then at that point, maybe you can run some cutters or you can kick the ball back out and you can get some ball movement that way once they're in a scramble. But you can't just move the ball quickly around the perimeter side to side against that type of defense. So that is why you saw a lot more one-on-one ISO driving to the rim, that type of stuff. It wasn't always perfectly executed, but that's why Oklahoma State's really good on defense. They make it difficult. Once you start driving, you're sped up. They're trying to make you make a quick decision, and you got to try to find a passing lane with a bunch of long athletic dudes taking them away. So they did a good job of that. Xavier had some nice drives, made some nice plays in the first half. They also had some moments like Paul Scruggs where he it looked kind of ugly. You know, He either turns it over or he takes a bad shot and, and it doesn't go in. That's kind of part of playing against a team like Oklahoma State for the most part on the game. I thought the offense executed pretty well. Yeah, I, I did too. And and to stay in that line of thinking with with the coaching, um, I, I really think Travis has shown, and, and for anybody that follows me on Twitter knows that I've always been high on Travis. And, you know, there was some rocky things to start the year for sure. But in the last few games, in the last three or four games, especially through New York and now in the last couple of games here yesterday, to me, it really feels like we've started to see this evolution of Travis Steele and some of the in-game adjustments that he's making with the zone or or with the substitutions at the end that I, I noticed where, and somebody pointed this out on the message board too, making wholesale changes, offense, defense at the end of the game that we don't see him do a ton. Um But just the way that Xavier has been able to adapt, he's been absolutely automatic out of timeouts. And that's a huge thing. Yesterday, Xavier is just able to get basically free buckets out of timeouts every time that they were coming down the court. Uh, It it was really, to me, it has shown a lot of promise uh, to be able to adapt, adjust, and and to be able to do things that Xavier's done in the last few games that really – can give you a lot of, of optimism going forward here into what's going to be kind of a tough start to the Big East season with Villanova and the rest here in December. You know, Zach Taylor, the Bengals head coach, said something last week after a game where he was getting asked sort of about his coaching staff. And he said, you know, I'd like to think as coaches, we're allowed to get better too. And <laughs> I thought that was, a, you know, a, a worthwhile point. Like we, everyone is like, this coach sucks. He's good or he's bad. You know, you're either a great coach or you suck according to fans, it's like, well, he's a brand new coach who's had a tough road to deal with to this point. There are definitely some things to question. There's also some things that look pretty promising about what he's doing, recruiting being probably chief among them, but also some in-game things. Like the set plays have always been good. This isn't a new thing. They didn't just get good at running sets after timeouts. That's been something they've been doing ever since Travis took over. And he was a big architect of why Max teams did those things well. He was a big part of those offenses too. So X and O wise, I don't think Travis has many issues. But I think there are just some natural things about taking over any job, but especially a job where you're a leader and you're, in this case, a head coach, where you get more comfortable in your own skin. 
initially you're you're about establishing your identity. We're going to do what we do, all these things, right? And then maybe as you get a little more comfortable, you start to realize, well, this is our identity, but I also think maybe we need to do this a little bit more often, or I'm comfortable enough that we'll be fine staying with our identity, but we can also change it up for this opponent and do something a little bit different. I think you're seeing more of that, of Travis just being more comfortable in his own skin, being more willing to try new things. And part of that comes with having better personnel that enables you to do it. Like, for instance, in a 2-3 zone, Jack Nunji and Deontay Miles are clearly at their best on defense when they're able to hang out around the rim more. Their advantage isn't that they can get out and hedge ball screens and move laterally like it was for Jason Carter, whereas he wasn't going to help you at all trying to protect the rim. He was able to get out and slide and and guard multiple spots in theory. And these two, (laughs) Nunji and Miles, are not. So like they give you a lot if they're able to hang out around the rim and protect it and rebound a little bit. So I think those are some of the things you're seeing too is the personnel, offense, defense substitutions. In years past, I don't know that you had enough guys that you felt comfortable, even if they were a better defender than someone that was on the floor, maybe. You weren't comfortable putting them in an end-of-game situation, period, just because there was a clear drop-off between your top five or six and those next couple of guys in the rotation. This year, you've got a lot of guys where it's pretty comparable between them, and you don't always know who the best options are to have on the floor. It makes it a lot easier to say, we need four ball handlers against this pressure defense late. We're going to go to that. We need defense and rim protectors here for this possession. We're going to go to that. And you just keep changing those looks. So part of it is also about the personnel. I, I definitely think that's a big part of it. One thing that I think is worth talking about too is going forward. How much is this zone going to be a part of things? A couple of people have already asked me that of like, was this a one-off for Oklahoma state just exclusive to that game plan? Or is this something that they're going to continue to try to use I think my answer would be they'll use it sparingly. I don't think you'll see a lot of it. Man-to-man pack line is still going to be their identity, but there are a few good reasons that I think they will continue to use it at least some. One is what I just mentioned about Nunji and Miles. They are clearly much better if you can park them in front of the basket and let them do their thing. But two, I also think if you take a quick glance at the Big East, not a lot of teams other than Butler right now are shooting a lot of threes and making a lot of threes from the outside. So zone could be a nice answer, particularly against some of the lower teams in the conference, like St. John's, Creighton, DePaul. All three of them have been struggling to shoot the three. They don't want to shoot the three a lot. Their offense gets bogged down at times. If you find yourself on the road, you're struggling against one of those lower level teams at a game you don't want to lose. Maybe throw the zone out there in the second half again and see if you can run off another six minute run against one of those lesser teams. Well, even more immediately than those guys, think about what's coming on Saturday. Exactly. right. I mean, UC may may be the best example coming up, and I've talked about that on the board too, where it's like Bryant that they just played last night, talking about UC, played a 2-3 zone for pretty much the entire game, I think. So, um, you know, UC is not a shooting team from the outside. They've got a guy or two that you have to keep an eye on, but they they not only struggle to shoot from the outside, they just struggle to score. Period. Period. So, so I, yeah, I think the two-three zone would be a, a great option for them too. But that's a long-winded way of saying I think we'll definitely continue to see the zone mixed in throughout the season at different times. It will be matchup specific, and it's not going to be like the one-three-one. I don't think where they went to that as their main defense at times that year with Matt Stainbrook and James Farr and, and all those guys. So uh, you'll you'll continue to see it, but it might it's not going to be too frequently. I don't think. Yeah, and now if you want to dive in here into some of the individual performances from yesterday, I think Kobe Jones is where we got to start. Kobe has just been – there. it's really hard to describe how well Kobe has played just 
overall as as a complete basketball player is the leading rebounder in the Big East right now, almost 10 rebounds a game, uh, another double-double yesterday. And it seems like he's doing it just so effortlessly and so really quietly, I think is, is a good way to say it too, where you just kind of look at the stat sheet and you say, oh man, okay, it's another day that ends in Y and another day that Colby Jones was the best player on the court. And that's really kind of the beauty of his game in some ways. I know a lot of people are saying he needs to be more aggressive. He needs to go get the ball more and be more involved. And ultimately for Xavier, that might be a good thing if he does start to take over a little bit more. You know, like I think his first possession used in the game against Oklahoma State came like at the 12 and a half minute mark of the first half. So yeah, I got to imagine sometime in the first war, he should be using a possession and things like that. But also part of the great thing about Colby is you don't have to run offense through him for him to still get a double-double and be the best player on the floor. You don't have to make sure he gets a lot of touches or gets a lot of shots. He can score off of hustle points. He can do it quietly. He can be super efficient, which he was in this Oklahoma State game. And again, that's not to say that Xavier can't get him involved more or shouldn't get him involved more. But at the same time, especially when you look at like his long-term value to NBA teams, that's part of what everyone loves about Colby is that he can get you 17 points without it really seeming like he took hardly any shots. Yeah, you're exactly right. And yesterday was was a perfect example of that where it just felt like every time kind of Xavier needed somebody to step up, they needed a bucket, they needed a rebound, whatever it was, and Colby's name was called, he was there. And, and for somebody that isn't playing necessarily just as a straight like back-to-the-basket kind of post guy – to be putting up the rebounding numbers that he is, is pretty incredible. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, I remember Romain Sato playing, but you're also talking about the A-10. It was a different time. I know he was a great rebounder. I'm not trying to downgrade Romain Sato, but I just haven't seen a wing like Colby Jones at Xavier. He is the, the strength, the athleticism. He's not a freak athlete by any stretch of the imagination. And long-term, in terms of his NBA draft prospects, that is something that they'll look at and that'll hold him back a little bit is when you're looking for a player like him who's going to be a wing defender and a role guy, you're usually looking for elite type athletes and he's not quite that. But at this level, the way he plays so aggressively and is so smart and always in the right position and willing to just put his body on the line, whether it be on the offensive glass or defensively, he really plays just a, a super unselfish style of basketball. And it's it's really fun to watch. And I imagine playing with him as a teammate has got to be one of the best things you could ask for as a basketball player. Yeah. And like you said, efficient six for 10 from the field, you know, four for six from the free throw line, gets 12 rebounds, has four assists. So it, it's not like he's, you know, there were times last year, let's put it this way. There were times last year where you would look at Zach Fremantle's line and you would think, oh man, like he left so many shots on the floor. Or there were a lot of bunnies that he missed around the rim, but then you'd look at his stat line and he'd have 24 points, 25 points. And it, it would just kind of come out of nowhere. That's not how this is happening. No, no. I mean, he is just really freaking good at basketball. <laughs> That's like <laughs> the best way. I, know. I mean, I could go into this a million different ways, but Colby Jones is everything that we hyped him up to be during the preseason. And it doesn't often work out that way when everyone's talking about how great a guy looks before the year. They don't often live up to the expectations or exceed them like this. Colby has been all that and more. One thing I did want to touch on because I got some uh, questions about it last night. I guess there were some goofy tweets going around or whatever about Colby potentially leaving after this year as a first rounder. 
I do not see that happening at all, to be quite honest. One, I don't think he would leave after this year just because there is more upside for him. He's not near a finished product at this point. But also, I don't think he's really a first-rounder this year, and he's, he's going to have to prove a lot before he's going to be a first-rounder ever. Uh, one, like I just mentioned, his athleticism is not a, a top-tier athlete for the NBA. Two, he still hasn't really proven much of anything when it comes to his jump shot. Now, I, I have faith that he can be a good jump shooter. I think he's going to continue to shoot more. He's averaging about two and a half attempts per game, I think, right now from three and uh, making about a third of those, which is, you know, okay. But I imagine he would like to, after this year, assuming it continues the way it has, I think he'll, he'll hear from a lot of scouts telling him, if you come back and shoot four and a half threes a game and you, you, you become a Josh Hart type of guy and really prove you can be a three-point threat to go along with how smart you are and your IQ and all the different things you can do, then yeah, then he's maybe taken more seriously as a, a higher prospect. But again, I don't know when he crosses over into that first round territory right now. I think people would definitely be looking at him as a second round type prospect. And I don't even know that he would be drafted necessarily if he left after this year. And I'm super high on Colby. Like I couldn't yeah. think more of him as a player, but that's just the reality of where it's at. Now, maybe he'll continue to get better and show more parts of his game this year. And by the end of the year, I'll have a different take on that. But people worried about Colby Jones leaving right now because he's going to be a first round draft pick. That's we're getting way ahead of ourselves right there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then take a look around the rest of the team and somebody we got to talk about Rick. Nate Johnson scored 69 points in his last three games, and he has just been really just like yesterday had a three before barely the cameras were even on the court. <laughs> that was funny. Everyone was like, what happened? How did we make that three? <laughs> it was super quick. Oh, yeah. I don't know oh, how many seconds had come off the clock before he made that one, but it could have been yeah, it was like three. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like three or four seconds because Oklahoma State won the tip, but it went right to him. And then he just turned around and shot it. The thing with Nate is I don't know where it ends. He is such a good shooter when he's in his zone that I feel like anything is possible. I mean, I think he can take over games against some of Xavier's best competition. I think he could score 30 or 40 points in a game when he's in a zone like this. The question is, how long does he ride this hot streak? Because when he transferred from Gardner-Webb, when I wrote the Impact article, I said he is a high percentage three-point shooter, but he's not as much of a knockdown guy as you would think for someone who shoots that high percentage. He's more of a streaky guy. And when he's hot, he is as good of a shooter as there is in this country at the college level. He is unbelievable. And that's right now he's on one of those hot streaks. So it's like, if I'm Xavier, I'm just continuing to try to feed that confidence and figure out what can we do to ride Nate Johnson as long as possible. And he came out against Oklahoma state and was for the third straight game, looking like their go-to option on offense he gave him a nice little spark to kind of keep him going through that first half as they were scuffing a little bit feeling out Oklahoma State and then the second half some other guys took over and he didn't have to do as much but yeah when he is shooting like this it is it's something to watch and I mean it it's a huge deal for Xavier's offense because it makes everybody else better from the aspect of they got a little more space there's a little less help in the gap they've got a hug up on Nate it, it changes the way teams defend Xavier how long have you been sitting on that Johnson and D headline from the Central Michigan game? Uh, you know, everyone, I guess, thinks that I have a mind that's in the gutter and thinks that was intentional. I was just writing as one does. I thought it was a normal, straight headline. I was a, I was a little bored in a hotel room in Cleveland. I'll admit that. I was a little bored in a hotel room in Cleveland. It was... It was, uh, I got the response that I figured I would get from it. A lot of groans <laughs> and eye rolling and a few uh, immature people enjoyed it. So 
<laughs> well, you look, I mean, you talk about Nate Johnson, but Nunji too. The look at the transfer production that this team is getting right now. Jack Nunji, I don't think any of us really expected the amount of point production and, and everything that Jack has has done so quickly. I'm not going to say we didn't expect it at all, but coming off the injury that Jack had, I don't think we really expected Jack to be at this level, this many minutes a game as legitimately a, a player that Xavier really wouldn't be in this spot without right now. And then you have Nate Johnson too, and you pair it together. These two transfers are completely changing the dynamic of this team. Yeah, and I will say I did. I definitely felt like Jack Dungey was clearly the best transfer Travis Steele had landed since he took over the program. I mean, I'm not going back to the Crawford years and everything like that. There's there's some names Drew Lavender, all that, but. In terms of since Travis Steele has taken over the program, Nunji, I felt, was clearly the best transfer coming in had he not been playing behind Luca Garza. And even farther, if he hadn't had the crazy injury history that he's had to deal with, there's no telling what type of player he would be right now. I mean, he is a unique big man with his length and skill and IQ. He can just do a lot of things with that seven foot plus wingspan, even some of the simple ones where he's just, he's not even really posting a guy up. He just kind of shields him off, walks him up the lane a little bit, and then holds out one big arm towards the basket. And they lob it over the top of everybody. And he gets like, they get like one of those a game at least. It's like, <laughs> those are just free points, man. There's nothing to that other than throwing a decent lob pass inside to him, which everyone should be capable of. You can't say enough about Jack Nungy either, really. And the, the area where I think he's made a bigger impact than even offense is defensively because Part of their being willing to change and being more flexible on the defensive end is about needing to play Jack Nungy because he clearly makes them better. He's clearly one of their best players. They need him on the court. You're not going to have him hard hedging and flying up to midcourt and scrambling back and all this stuff like they used to do on ball screen coverages. So he is a big reason they probably went to those drop coverages. He's also a big reason we'll probably see them play some more zone going forward. And Ultimately, I think that's going to make them a better defensive team. I certainly think they're at their best defensively when he's in the game around the rim. So I want to go back to Nate Johnson real quick, too, because since we're kind of talking about both of them. The one thing that stands out to me about Nate Johnson when I think about Xavier's offense and how much upside they still have left and where they can get better is if you're an opposing team because of Colby Jones and Paul Scruggs, you can't put one of your better defenders on Nate Johnson more than likely. Or if yeah. you do, you're not putting one of your better defenders on Paul Scruggs and Colby Jones. It, one of those three is getting the team's third best perimeter defender, which means that defender probably isn't very good. I feel pretty good about one of those three guys taking advantage of a bad defensive matchup on any given night. So that's the thing with Nate Johnson, when he's shooting like that and he's a weapon, it makes it really tough to guard the Xavier offense because you got to put one one of one of those three guys is not going to have a very good defender on him more than likely unless you're like Oklahoma State and you got three good perimeter defenders which they did. It, I think that's going to work out for Xavier more often than not. You just hope Nate can continue to shoot at a, a pretty reasonable clip, or if he's off, then maybe Kunkel steps up. But how impressive has this guard play been overall? You look at the game yesterday, and we talked on last week's podcast about. Uh, you know, these smaller lineups and the way Xavier was playing. And, you know, we didn't we didn't see Kiki at all yesterday, which, by the way, I guess I should issue Kiki an apology for completely slandering his name last week at the uh, end of that game. I don't know if you saw that. I did not. What'd you do? Oh, well, yeah, I I, I complete. I just totally I called him out for almost blowing the end of that uh, 
that. Oh, on the podcast. Yeah. But yeah. I was confused. I was a little confused when you said that, but I thought you were kind of talking about two different plays. I didn't realize I, you actually meant the, the very last play. So yeah, no, I, really I, I was, that. I was talking about the last play. I was thinking of a different play in my head, but what was funny was it was, everybody thought I was talking about Nate Johnson. I was thinking of a different play that I thought was the last play of the game. And then as soon as we stopped recording, I go, wait a second. Kiki wasn't even on the floor on that last play of the game. Oh. Well, next time, like, tell me, I'll, I'll cut it out and it'll, they'll never know you said something <laughs> like that. But uh, yeah, no, I had honesty I was, and transparency here, Rick. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. You're a true journalist. I'm a shyster who is trying to fight general appliances <laughs> on Twitter right now. So I I do not. Did have you the same did you hear back? It. Anything? I more? Have, the, the, you know, they keep wanting to take it to direct messages. And I'm like, get, that's fine. Give, but, give, give people a 10 second breakdown here. You're, you're fighting a battle with GE. Yeah, they well, while I was on the road this weekend. Our washer exploded. Those are the terms of my fiance. I was like, okay, what did it really do? Because exploded would mean it like blew up and you know what? Like, well, it exploded. She's like, let me show you a video. And sure enough, like the thing exploded. It got lifted off the ground. It was like three feet away, twisted. It ripped out of the uh, the back in the uh, utility tub. The metal is all wrangled and it, the top blew off and the knob blew off. And it's, it's a, I mean, it's a pipe bomb in our basement. They ex- pipe bombed our basement uh, in the form of a Trojan horse washing machine, as I tweeted. And so they just keep wanting to go like, yeah, uh, just DM us. We'll, we'll put someone on the case. I'm like, I don't think you understand the urgency of you pipe bombed our basement. I'm not doing this because I need a free washer. I'm fine with spending another 700, 800 bucks on a new washer, whatever. That's fine. I it's the it's the principle of you don't just get to pipe bomb people's basement and be like, oh, this is a this is a normal thing to do. It's no big deal. We'll get someone out to check on it. And then when I start Googling, I find news stories and video. This is a known thing. They're just like, yeah, one out of every however many washers does this to people, and we're okay with that happening. And I'm not standing for it. I'm like, what if? Someone has their children around when it happens or something. I'm fighting for the young families that are still to come that are going to buy GE washers down the line. So uh, I I haven't had much of a Twitter battle to fight in the last several years since maybe Dan Cronin. So I'm ready for a jihad, man. Let's freaking go. (laughs) If anyone you want to join in, please do. Have you had any success? What's the update? What's well, the last update? They're concerned. I, and I, I mentioned Cap's name, and I think they know about his memes and his burner account, so they were worried about that. They replied in the DMs once I did that. But it keep, it just keeps giving me the runaround. Like, yeah, we're looking into it. We're going to get someone here. Oh, there's nothing to look into. You pipe-bombed our basement. Fix that. Fix the deal. Show some concern. Show a little sense of urgency. Tell me you're going to do something today about it. I don't want to hear, we've got someone coming in a few weeks to check out your case. I don't want a case number. I don't need a case number. Just tell me you pipe bombed my basement and you know that you did it. That's all I really want. So are they sending anybody out? No, we, no they just they just keep saying, oh, we're, we're, you got a case number. We're going to look into it. I'm like, I don't think, but they, well, keep they-, me, they want me to go to the DMs. I'm like, I'm done with the DMs. We're doing it in public where everyone can see. <laughs> I don't have many followers, but Adam Baum has a few more and he's tweeting about it. Lindsay Patterson has a few more. She's tweeting about it. All you guys are replying to him and sending them a picture of Samsung washers and Whirlpool washers. Like it's the end of a Xavier game and you're you're tweeting at the opponent. It, I love it. It's putting pressure on them. It's making them feel the squeeze. I think they're going to crack. Well, Rick, all the best to you. I appreciate I- that. I appreciate your concern. I'm sorry everyone had to listen to that, but that's where we're at right now. This is my life. Well, well I, I I was telling you before we came on about 10 minutes before I we started recording this, my washing machine is on its last leg. Now, see, my washing machine does not explode. It just moves. So it does like a big, huge rumble, and then it just moves like two feet. Yeah. I want to be very clear. I know what you're talking about, and like that's a normal thing. 
I just want so people understand that I'm not like embellishing or exaggerating. That's not what happened. Ours was like a big kaboom. And when you see it, you know, like, yeah, that was an explosion. So were there like projectiles? Fortunately, our glass top did not break. It like blew upwards. It wasn't locked. The lid wasn't locked, I guess. Okay. I don't know. Um, but I've seen others online already where the glass had blown right out and there's shards of glass everywhere. So I'm sorry. We've talked about this too much. That's on me. But all I will tell you in the future is if you are a company and you're going to have your appliances explode, don't do it when someone is on their way to Fort Wayne, Indiana, because they have way too much time on their hands to start a Twitter war. And that's where I'm at right now. So here we are. I've got the time. I'm in it. I'm, I'm motivated to keep it going. I'm doing it for the future families. Well, you, yeah, at this point, you can't, you can't back down now. No. There's no going back now. You're too embattled in this. Yeah, and we're not going to the DMs either, GE Appliances. Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll get Local 12 on the case, see if we can get Dwayne Pullman over there doing an investigative journalist piece on exploding washers. Yeah, there you uh, go. What about Zach Fremantle? Let's talk about Zach Fremantle because he made his return this week. He checked in against Central Michigan and, and got a few minutes. This game against Oklahoma State, though, he really played. I mean, he, he got minutes. Clearly rusty. What were your overall impressions of our first look at Zach Fremantle this year? I, yeah, I think it's a little too hard to read into too much with, with Zach when he's coming off of really inactivity for the last couple of months where he wasn't doing anything, right? Because even before his surgery, he had been held out of practice for a long time. So I had some people texting me going, what, what what's going on with Zach here? I'm like, look, you got, you got to remember, granted, he's a high-level basketball player, but Anybody that takes that kind of time off is going to take a little bit of time to ease back into things. But looking at it yesterday, right, he only scored three points. He's one for six from the floor, but he did play 19 minutes. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from yesterday. You can excuse Xavier won the game. They had the right players in that you have, like we said, the Jack Nungy to be able to step up in there and make the kinds of plays that Xavier needed to down low to win the game. I'm not going to read too much into one for six from the field when Zach is is coming back from the type of injury and the type of lack of of uh, real game experience, practice experience that he's not had the last couple of months. Uh, but it, I think the bigger thing to look at with Zach is just that you're getting in there now in these, because like I said a second ago, you have you know Ball State this week, Cincinnati, whatever, but the start of the Big East schedule, right? You have Villanova and UConn. This is a huge month of December for Xavier. And to be able to get Zach 19 minutes yesterday, it's not like he was playing five minutes in yesterday's game. Then he's going to go out there and you know score 20 points against Ball State in a game where it's like, okay, well, how much did that really read into anything? And then all of a sudden it's 845 on Saturday night in a shootout and you're going, okay, what are we going to get here? You're getting... Zach back into the flow of things. You're back in the offense. You're getting a little bit of chemistry with him and the other guys on the floor that maybe like a guy with Jack, where we've talked a lot about how those two are going to fit in. And we'll talk a little bit more about it here, but you're starting to see some of those things gel that now that he's practicing and starting to get his feet under him a little bit more. I think that's more of what you can read into. Yeah. The good news is he looks healthy, right? I mean, the fact that he was able to play 19 minutes and I didn't really see anything that would suggest he's suffering lingering effects from that foot injury or anything like that. So it seems like he's healed up. Well, he, his conditioning is coming back quickly. He's able to play that many minutes against a high intensity game and a team that's pressuring you like Oklahoma state. I think that was a good sign. The bad news is he's yeah, it's, he's exactly as rusty as you would expect a guy who hasn't really played high level bath hasn't played at all since August 
to be when he's trying to enter a high-level basketball game against you know, high major opponents. So in terms of the short-term future, you're you don't you can't really expect anything out of him. Like even for the crosstown shootout, I wouldn't be hoping, oh, Zach's gonna have a double-double in this game and return to form. I just don't think he's gonna be there yet. Now, could he? make an impact. Yeah. I think he's getting to that point where he might have a big shot or a big possession or two that that will matter, but I just don't think he's going to be one of your go-to guys yet and be the Zach that we were used to from last year at this point. But one thing that I do think was pretty clear from the second half of that Oklahoma state game and the minutes that he got in crunch time, when the game was very much on the line, this coaching staff feels more comfortable with him out there at that forward position than they do Jerome Hunter or than they do with uh, maybe an extra big in Deontay Miles, uh, even moving him down to the five at times when Jack was in foul trouble. They clearly feel like Zach may not be the best defender, but he knows the system better and he's not going to have the lapses within the system that we've seen at times from Hunter and Miles. So I think Nunji they're very comfortable with. Uh, if they move Colby down to the four, they're very comfortable with that. But aside from that, Fremantle's probably their next most trusted front court defender. And so it's, it's good from that perspective that you feel like, Hey, we're, we're close late in the game and we don't want to give up a possession here. We don't want to have a defensive lapse. We, we know they're going to run something. You can at least put him in the game and feel confident that he's healthy enough to do so. So I think that's kind of where we're at for at least the next week of games. And then once we see him in the cross down shootout, we kind of go from there and reassess it because at that point, I think you'll start seeing him get back to being more like himself. Yeah, I'm with you there, Rick. I think that Zach's a player that we've seen over the last couple of years. It shows a lot of he's very trustworthy. You know what you're going to get out of him. And uh, I don't think there's too much concern right away. I, I I do think that now this week of practice, I would like to see a little more production, maybe offensively in that Ball State game, just because I do think that that's a type of a game that Xavier schedules that game on purpose, right? They always play that midweek game before the shootout just to keep the nerves down and and keep your feet under you and able to just not let the shootout build the entire week. And that's the kind of game that Zach could use to, like I said, maybe feel a little bit more comfortable and confident going into a game on Saturday that, Frankly, Xavier should win by a healthy margin on Saturday night, but still a game that it's a rivalry game and you never know what's going to happen in a game like that. But still, this is a big week for Xavier um, and it's a chance for Zach too. I think on Wednesday to, to make a little bit of an impact. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. That, that ball state game is going to be one where they try to get him some confidence going. Like you saw them out of the timeout last night, run that zoom rip action where it's basically uh, he's setting a down screen and then they're setting a back screen for him uh, for a layup. It's clear. They want to try to get him on track. So I think you'll see some more of that. They'll give him some opportunities against ball state. Again, I wouldn't be expecting him to be a go-to type scorer by the UC game again, but he, I think he'll be able to give you something. And then after that, we'll, We'll see where he's at. So uh, it's it's good news that the Xavier team is in the position they're in with three currently quad one wins and playing pretty well. And the guy who most people thought would be their best player coming in this year still isn't anywhere near himself. That's that's yeah. a pretty good place to be in if you're Xavier, because that means there's still some good upside for this team. And so Xavier gets that win yesterday, overcomes the atmosphere that and the, oh man, we didn't even mention the officiating. 
Yeah, that was the disaster. I, that, I, I felt like that was kind of led to the broadcast too, the, the weirdness of the game that we were watching. It was like those refs were just, the one, uh, the ball hit the ref while he was out of bounds. I saw a lot of people complain about that where Nate was nowhere near out of bounds, but they called the ball out of bounds. It was because the ball hit the official while he was out of bounds. It bumped into his leg. So that was like a legit call. But there were the two where the ball was clearly deflected out of bounds and they just completely missed it. I mean, very, very obviously deflected out of bounds by an Oklahoma State player, and they called it out on Xavier. There was a couple charbage calls. Uh, yeah, it was not. It was not a good job of, of officiating by that crew for certain. So it, it it's one of those things where I, I was talking about it during the game where you say like, it's not like you're sitting there and you're saying, oh, a block or a charge could have gone one different way. Maybe like you said, a couple of charges, but boy, there were just some objectively bad calls where like the ball goes out of bounds. It's not, it's touched by Oklahoma state or, or there it just, man, there were just some objectively bad decisions made and where part of the job of an official is to just be a good game manager yep. and to just understand the flow of the game and manage the game. And if that had been a rivalry game or a game with any kind of energy, that could have led to some, some interesting uh, scenarios in that game. As someone who watches a lot of Horizon League basketball, that felt like a Horizon League officiating crew, honestly. Like, it was amazing when I'm used to what NKU has, and then we went and played at DePaul and had, like, Big East-level officials. The game was so much smoother, so much more well-organized and administered by the officials. And then you go back to Horizon League refs, it's like, oh, yeah, this sucks. But that's what we just saw in Oklahoma State was, like, those refs were terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one last thing to touch on with Fremantle, I think. What do you think about the the lineups? Are you a bigger fan of playing Fremantle and Nunji together, which is what I think the starting lineup will eventually be at some point? Colby at the three, Fremantle at the four, Nunji at the five, and then you can play them with Scruggs and and uh, Johnson likely. Or do you like it better where Fremantle and Nunji are tandeming at the five, and you're sliding Hunter down to play the four more? No, I, I I think that once Fremantle's back in there, I think that's kind of where Jerome Hunter's minutes go when you talk about who's going to lose minutes because Zach Fremantle's coming back and playing a lot. I think Jerome Hunter is somebody that will lose minutes because of Zach going back in there, and I don't think there's any question that that's the decision that has to be made right now. And Jerome, not to harp on him too badly, but he just hasn't shown a lot right now on the offensive end to show a ton of production or any reason to take minutes away from Zach Fremantle who you know, at, at Zach's best has earned and deserved those minutes. So I think it's, I think it's pretty clearly a situation where you find a way to get Zach and Jack on the floor. Is there a joke or is there a, is there a nickname or a something in there? No, With I don't Zach think they've Jack? played enough know. yet together, but I'm sure it's right, coming well, down we the line. Shoot, we, don't, we don't want to shoehorn it in. Yeah, uh, the, but, Leave the nicknames and nonsense to the Roll Blob Pod guys. Roll <laughs> Blob Pod. Yeah, that was right. Yeah, Roll Blob go. Pod, and uh, I'm sure they'll come up with something for you. Yeah, so I, I think I think uh, Zach and Jack, both of them on the floor together. It, again, it just goes back to having your best guys on the floor and finding a way to be able to utilize them at the highest level, and those guys down low give you that. Yeah, I think ultimately that's their best lineup. But the I think it also gets interesting when you start to sub away from that lineup, then where do you go? Is it Hunter back in at the four for Fremantle? Or do you more often try to slide Colby down now 
and play with the smaller lineup. Cause we've seen it now the last few big games that they've had in Oklahoma state, obviously with their pressure, you wanted the extra ball handler. So it made a lot of sense to put Colby at the four in that game. Mm-hmm. But the way I look at it is Jerome Hunter right now, he takes a lot of bad shots on offense. He's not making shots at all on offense. He has some lapses defensively and, and physically he has some attributes that help him defensively too. He, he has some possessions that are pretty good when he switches onto a smaller player. Occasionally he's able to keep them in front, things like that, but he also doesn't seem to know the system all that well and gets lost occasionally. And the best part about his game is probably rebounding at this point. Right. Which I, which yeah. I like, I think he does a pretty good job on that. But when Colby Jones plays the four, he rebounds better than Jerome Hunter does. So that one aspect where he kind of excels over Colby, or you would think that's his best attribute, Colby is still better than him at that. Plus he does so many other things well, and he's never going to get lost within the system. He's always going to be in the right spot. He plays with such a high IQ. He doesn't take bad shots. I I do think Jerome Hunter is going to be at risk of losing a lot of minutes here as they continue to move on. I think he and Deontay Miles are going to be the two that see their minutes decrease the most. And in some ways, I actually think Deontay still has more value and uh, more unique aspects of his game to offer than Jerome does. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you. All right. Well, uh, I think unless you have anything else, is that that good? We got Ball State Wednesday night, 630. They're not very good, but they're the type of mid-major team you never want to play because they shoot three well and they shoot a lot of them. Uh, it's not quite like Central Michigan where they're just bombing them up with not much of hope of them going in. They actually shoot it pretty well. So Ball State is one of those scary teams, uh, but they stink defensively. Xavier should be able to just pound it in inside, worst case scenario, with with Nunji and, and maybe even Freeman and and should be okay in that one. And then uh, Saturday, obviously, the shootout will be a wild atmosphere on Saturday night, 830. Yeah, we'll do a, a- – shootout preview after the ball state game that's why we're not getting into it much here because that's that really deserves its own podcast and a full breakdown and maybe we'll have a guest or two as well on that one but that's that's my favorite game of the year every year i love the shootout game i want to talk about that in full detail so we'll give you an extra podcast this week to preview that one later sounds good well all right thanks for listening everybody and uh rick uh best of luck with the uh appliance issue I appreciate it. Tweet at GE underscore appliances if you want to join in on the fight. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody.